0: Section 8 of Discourses Biological and Geological by Thomas Huxley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Yeast, eighteen seventy one. It has been known from time immemorial that the sweet liquids which may be obtained by expressing the juices of the fruits and stems of various plants, or by steeping malted barley in hot water, or by mixing honey with water, are liable to undergo a series of very singular changes, if freely exposed to the air and left to themselves, in warm weather. However clear and pellucid the liquid may have been when first prepared, however carefully it may have been freed by straining and filtration from even the finest visible impurities, it will not remain clear. After a time it will become cloudy and turbid. Little bubbles will be seen rising to the surface, and their abundance will increase until the liquid hisses, as if it were simmering on a fire. By degrees, some of the solid particles which produce the turbidity of the liquid collect at its surface into a scum, which is blown up by the emerging air bubbles into a thick, foamy froth. Another moiety sinks to the bottom and accumulates as a muddy sediment, or lees. When this action has continued with more or less violence for a certain time, it gradually moderates. The evolution of bubbles slackens and finally comes to an end. Scum and lees alike settle at the bottom, and the fluid is once more clear and transparent. But it has acquired properties of which no trace existed in the original liquid. Instead of being a mere sweet fluid, mainly composed of sugar and water, the sugar has more or less completely disappeared, and it has acquired that peculiar smell and taste which we call spirituous. Instead of being devoid of any obvious effect upon the animal economy it has become possessed of a very wonderful influence on the nervous system, so that in small doses it exhilarates while in larger it stupefies and may even destroy life. Moreover, if the original fluid is put into a still and heated moderately, the first and last product of its distillation is simple water while when the altered fluid is subjected to the same process, the matter which is first condensed in the receiver is found to be a clear, volatile substance which is lighter than water, has a pungent taste and smell, possesses the intoxicating powers of the fluid in an eminent degree, and takes fire the moment it is brought in contact with a flame. The alchemists called this volatile fluid which they obtained from wine spirits of wine just as they called hydrochloric acid spirits of salt and we to this day call refined turpentine spirits of turpentine as the spiritus or breath of a man was thought to be the most refined and subtle part of him the intelligent essence of a man was also conceived as a sort of breath or spirit, and by analogy, the most refined essence of anything was called its spirit. And thus it has come about that we use the same word for the soul of man and for a glass of gin. At the present day, however, we even more commonly use another name for this peculiar liquid, namely alcohol, and its origin is not less singular. The Dutch physician van Helmont lived in the latter part of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century, in the transition period between alchemy and chemistry, and was rather more alchemist than chemist. Appended to his Opera Omnia, published in 1707, there is a very needful Clavis ad Obscuriorum Sensum Referendum, in which the following passage occurs. Alcohol. Chimicis est liquor aut pulvis subtil subtilisatas. vocabulo orientalibus quoque comprimis habesines familiari. Quibus Alcohol, speciatum pulverem impalpabilem ex antimonio pro oculis tingendis denotat. Hodie autem, ob analogiam, quibus pulvis tenerior ut pulvis oculorum cancri summe subtilisatas alcohol audit, ad alita ac spiritus rectificatissimi alcoholisati dicontor similarly robert boyle speaks of a fine powder as alcohol and so late as the middle of the last century the english lexicographer nathan bailey defines alcohol as the pure substance of anything separated from the more gross a very fine and impalpable powder or a very pure well rectified spirit but by the time of the publication of Lavoisier's Traité alimenté de chimie in seventeen eighty nine, the term a l c o h o l a l k o h o l or a l k w o l, for it is spelt in all three ways, which Van Helmont had applied primarily to a fine powder and only secondarily to spirits of wine, had lost its primary meaning altogether and from the end of the last century until now it has, I believe, been used exclusively as the denotation of the spirits of wine and bodies chemically allied to that substance. The process which gives rise to alcohol in a saccharine fluid is known to us as fermentation, a term based upon the apparent boiling-up or effervescence of the fermenting liquid, and of Latin origin. Our Teutonic cousins call the same process Gerchen, Gesen, "gerchen," and Gichen. But oddly enough, we do not seem to have retained their verb or their substantive denoting the action itself, though we do use names identical with or plainly derived from theirs for the scum and lees. These are called in Low German Gecht and Gicht in Anglo-Saxon, gest, gist, and yist, whence our yeast. Again, in Low German and in Anglo-Saxon, there is another name for yeast, having the form balm or baum, and in the Midland counties, balm is the name by which yeast is still best known. In High German, there is a third name for yeast, hefe, which is not represented in English, so far as I know. All these words are said by philologists to be derived from roots expressive of the intestine motion of a fermenting substance. Thus hefe is derived from heben to raise, balm from beren or beren to bear up, yeast, ist and gist have all to do with seething and foam, with yeasty waves and gusty breezes. The same reference to the swelling up of the fermenting substance is seen in the gallo-latin terms levure and leaven. It is highly creditable to the ingenuity of our ancestors that the peculiar property of fermented liquids, in virtue of which they make glad the heart of man, seems to have been known in the remotest periods of which we have any record. All savages take to alcoholic fluids as if they were to the manner born. Our Vedic forefathers intoxicated themselves with the juice of the Soma. Noah, by a not unnatural reaction against a superfluity of water, appears to have taken the earliest practicable opportunity of qualifying that which he was obliged to drink and the ghosts of the ancient Egyptians were solaced by pictures of banquets in which the wine-cup passes round, graven on the walls of their tombs. A knowledge of the process of fermentation, therefore, was in all probability possessed by the prehistoric populations of the globe. It must have become a matter of great interest even to primeval wine-bibbers to study the methods. By which fermented liquids could be surely manufactured, no doubt it was soon discovered that the most certain, as well as the most expeditious way of making a sweet juice ferment, was to add to it a little of the scum or lees of another fermenting juice. And it can hardly be questioned that this singular excitation of fermentation in one fluid by a sort of infection or inoculation of a little ferment taken from some other fluid, together with the strange swelling, foaming and hissing of the fermented substance, must have always attracted attention from the more thoughtful. Nevertheless, the commencement of the scientific analysis of the phenomena dates from a period not earlier than the first half of the seventeenth century. At this time, Van Helmont made a first step by pointing out that the peculiar hissing and bubbling of a fermented liquid is due not to the evolution of common air which he, as the inventor of the term gas, calls gas ventosum, but to that of a peculiar kind of air such as is occasionally met with in caves, mines, and wells, and which he calls gas silvestre but a century elapsed before the nature of this gas silvestre or as it was afterwards called fixed air was clearly determined and it was found to be identical with that deadly choke-damp by which the lives of those who descend into old wells or mines or brewer's vats are sometimes suddenly ended and with the poisonous aeriform fluid which is produced by the combustion of charcoal and now goes by the name of carbonic acid gas during the same time it gradually became evident that the presence of sugar was essential to the production of alcohol and the evolution of carbonic acid gas which are the two great and conspicuous products of fermentation and finally in 1787 the italian chemist fabroni made the capital discovery that the yeast ferment the presence of which is necessary to fermentation is what he termed a vegeto-animal substance that is a body which gives off ammoniacal salts when it is burned and in other ways similar to the gluten of plants and the albumin and casein of animals these discoveries prepared the way for the illustrious frenchman lavoisier who first approached the problem of fermentation with a complete conception of the nature of the work to be done. The words in which he expresses this conception, in the treatise on elementary chemistry to which reference has already been made, mark the year 1789 as the commencement of a revolution of not less moment in the world of science than that which simultaneously burst over the political world and soon engulfed Lavoisier himself in one of its mad eddies. Footnote. We may lay it down as an incontestable axiom that in all the operations of art and nature, nothing is created. An equal quantity of matter exists both before and after the experiment. The quality and quantity of the elements remain precisely the same and nothing takes place beyond changes and modifications in the combinations of these elements. Upon this principle the whole art of performing chemical experiments depends. We must always suppose an exact equality between the elements of the body examined and those of the products of its analysis. Hence. Since from must of grapes we procure alcohol and carbonic acid, I have an undoubted right to suppose that must consists of carbonic acid and alcohol. From these premises we have two modes of ascertaining what passes during vinous fermentation. Either by determining the nature and the elements which compose the fermentable substances or by accurately examining the products resulting from fermentation. And it is evident that the knowledge of either of these must lead to accurate conclusions concerning the nature and composition of the other. From these considerations it became necessary accurately to determine the constituent elements of the fermentable substances, and for this purpose I did not make use of the compound juices of fruits, the rigorous analysis of which is perhaps impossible, but made choice of sugar which is easily analysed and the nature of which I have already examined. This substance is a true vegetable oxide, with two bases composed of hydrogen and carbon, brought to the state of an oxide by means of a certain proportion of oxygen. And these three elements are combined in such a way that a very slight force is sufficient to destroy the equilibrium of their connection. After giving the details of his analysis of sugar, and of the products of the fermentation, Lavoisier continues, The effect of the vinous fermentation upon sugar is thus reduced to the mere separation of its elements into two portions one part is oxygenated at the expense of the other so as to form carbonic acid while the other part being disoxygenated in favour of the latter is converted into the combustible substance called alcohol therefore if it were possible to reunite alcohol and carbonic acid together we ought to form sugar elements of chemistry by M. levoisier Translated by Robert Kerr, 2nd edition, 1793, pages 186-196, to end footnote. Thus, Lavoisier thought he had demonstrated that the carbonic acid and the alcohol which are produced by the process of fermentation are equal in weight to the sugar which disappears. But the application of the more refined methods of modern chemistry to the investigation of the products of fermentation by Pasteur in 1860 proved that this is not exactly true and that there is a deficit of from 5 to 7% of the sugar which is not covered by the alcohol and carbonic acid evolved the greater part of this deficit is accounted for by the discovery of two substances, glycerin and sexinic acid, of the existence of which Lavoisier was unaware, in the fermented liquid. But about 1.5% still remains to be made good. According to Pasteur, it has been appropriated by the yeast. But the fact that such appropriation takes place cannot be said to be actually proved. However this may be, there can be no doubt that the constituent elements of fully 98% of the sugar which has vanished during fermentation have simply undergone rearrangement. Like the soldiers of a brigade who at the word of a command divide themselves into the independent regiments to which they belong. The brigade is sugar. The regiments are carbonic acid, sexinic acid, alcohol and glycerin. From the time of Fabroni onwards it has been admitted that the agent by which this surprising rearrangement of the particles of the sugar is effected is the yeast. But the first thoroughly conclusive evidence of the necessity of yeast for the fermentation of sugar was furnished by Appert. whose method of preserving perishable articles of food excited so much attention in France at the beginning of this century. Gay-Lussac, in his Memoires sur la Fermentation, footnote Annale de Chimie, 1810, alludes to Appert's method of preserving beer-wort unfermented for an indefinite time by simply boiling the wort and closing the vessel in which the boiling fluid is contained in such a way as thoroughly to exclude air. And he shows that if a little yeast be introduced into such wort after it is cooled, the wort at once begins to ferment, even though every precaution be taken to exclude air. And this statement has since received full confirmation from Pasteur. On the other hand, Schwann, Schröder and Dutch and Pasteur have amply proved that air may be allowed to have free access to beer water without exciting fermentation, if only efficient precautions are taken to prevent the entry of particles of yeast along with the air. Thus the truth that the fermentation of a simple solution of sugar in water depends upon the presence of yeast rests upon an unassailable foundation. And the inquiry into the exact nature of the substance which possesses such a wonderful chemical influence becomes profoundly interesting. The first step towards the solution of this problem was made two centuries ago by the patient and painstaking Dutch naturalist Leeuwenhoek, who in the year 1680 wrote thus footnote Acana naturae detecta, edition november seventeen twenty one. Seppissime examinavi fermentum ceruissiae, semperque hoc ex globulis per materiam palucidam fluitantibus, quam ceruissiam esse censui constare observavi. I e, etiam, eventissimi, unem quemque huius fermenti globulum de nuo ex sex distinctis globulus constare, accurate idem quantitate et formae cui globulus sanguinis nostri respondentibus. quorum tales de deorum origine et formatione conceptus formabam, globulus nepe ex quibus farina tritici, hodae, avenae, fago tritici, se constat aquae colore dissolvi et aquae comisceri. Hac vero aqua, quam cerevisium vacare licet, multos ex minimus particulus in cerevisia coandunari, et hoc pacto efficere particulum sime globulum, quae sexta pars est globuli facis, et iterum sex ex hisce Globulis conjungi and footnote. Thus, Leeuwenhoek discovered that yeast consists of globules floating in a fluid, but he thought that they were merely the starchy particles of the grain from which the water was made, rearranged. He discovered the fact that yeast had a definite structure, but not the meaning of the fact a century and a half elapsed, and the investigation of yeast was recommenced almost simultaneously by Cagnon de la Tour in France and by Schramm and Kützing in Germany. The French observer was the first to publish his results, and the subject received at his hands and at those of his colleague, the botanist Tupin, full and satisfactory investigation. The main conclusions at which they arrived, are these. The globular or oval corpuscles which float so thickly in the yeast as to make it muddy, though the largest are not more than one two-thousandth of an inch in diameter, and the smallest may measure less than one seven-thousandth of an inch, are living organisms. They multiply with great rapidity by giving off minute buds, which soon attain the size of their parent, and then either become detached or remain united, forming the compound globules of which Leeuwenhoek speaks, though the constancy of their arrangement in sixes existed only in the worthy Dutchman's imagination. It was very soon made out that these yeast organisms to which Turpin gave the name of Troiulia cerevisiae, are more nearly allied to the lower fungi than to anything else. Indeed, Chupin and subsequently Berkeley and Hoffman, believed that they had traced the development of the Toriula into the well-known and very common mould, the Penicillium glaucum. Other observers have not succeeded in verifying these statements, and my own observations lead me to believe that, while the connection between Toriula and the moulds is a very close one, it is of a different nature from that which has been supposed. I have never been able to trace the development of Toriula into a true mould, but it is quite easy to prove that species of true mould, such as Penicillium, when sown in an appropriate nidus, such as a solution of tartrate of ammonia and yeast dash in water, with or without sugar, give rise to toruli similar in all respects to toriuli servicii, except that they are on the average smaller, moreover Bale has observed the development of a toula larger than Torula servicii from a mucor, a mould allied to a penicillium. It follows therefore that the toruli or organisms of yeast are veritable plants and conclusive experiments have proved that the power which causes the rearrangement of the molecules of the sugar is intimately connected with the life and growth of the plant in fact whatever arrests the vital activity of the plant also prevents it from exciting fermentation end of section 8